All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? What is happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. I don't feel well. How are you? I feel physically ill, so now I'm spiraling. Spiraling on top of everything else. I'm going to go get a uh, COVID test tomorrow. Um, because I do, uh, I guess I've gotten sloppy. I don't know. I go shopping and stuff, wear the mask. But I haven't felt well for the past few days. Maybe, could it be that I'm overwhelmed emotionally? And uh, maybe I could it be that I have post-traumatic sort of resonance going on in my being? Grief, loss, anxiety, everything else? I, I'd like to stay in that zone as opposed to the uh, what's the point of living and I don't want to die. That, that's the weird two feelings to straddle. What's the point... I'm terrified of dying. I'll just ride those. Those are the two skis that I'm on. Alan's Wybell is here. He was one of the original writers on Saturday Night Live. He co-created It's Gary Shandling's Show. He's a novelist, a screenwriter, and he has a new memoir out now, which I read, Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. So Wybell, he did a live one a while back. So, all right, getting on with it, I talked to you guys on Thursday, right? Well, was it Friday? Maybe it was Friday morning. I feel like it was Thursday, though. I dropped the show, and then I went, and I just got it in my head, you know? I, I got it in my head, and I've been talking about it. You know, this is about good news. It's about good news, or that feeling of good news, or what a little good news can do. I know you can find good news, or you can spin movements and, and cultural momentum into some hopeful zone sometimes you can maybe find some schadenfreude style good news with the uh you know with the in the president starting to become truly unglued publicly and poll numbers and all that but there's these there's this momentary good news like in the midst of all this horror you know on the macro and then in, in my micro life you know battling with this grief and now sort of freaking out about my my health I, I, I got it in my head that, you know, Monkey was at the beginning stages of, because that's what uh, his sister died of, and that's what old cats get. Uh, and, you know, I just I, I just had to finally wrap my brain around the fact that, you know, I got to bring him in to the vet to get some sort of blood test to determine whether or not he was in the beginning stages of renal failure. So I could know, you know, and I knew leaving the house with him in the fucking cage that, uh, that I probably wouldn't bring him back, that I probably would bring back an empty cage. And just like, you know, picturing myself walking through this fucking life right now is just the worst. It's just like a sad guy. So I drive him to the vet and I text the, my vet's very good, Dr. Modesto over at uh, Gateway. He always follows up. He asks me what's going on. So I'm waiting in the car for them to come get Monkey, and, you know, I'm just really, it's all crashing down on me, you know? It's all, all, all of it. You know, when I look at Monkey in the fucking cage in the back of the car, 
it's just like overwhelming. And I call Lipsite, and yeah, I'm just trying to talk through it. You know, I'm just trying to talk through it. You know that this is going down. That on top of the other loss, and look, I know many people have lost whole families. I know there's plenty of people that have lost more than me. I know this, but this is the life I'm living. But, you know, I'm just working it through with Sam. He's staying on the phone with me. And then they, they just, they come out, they take monkey, they pull the cage out of the back of the car, the vet person. And he just starts, you know, you know, meowing, terrified in that moment. And then it just brought back, you know, the ambulance guys, the paramedics taking Lin. It was just like, I just fucking came unglued, man. Just fucking tears and sadness and panic and everything else. And fucking Sam stayed on the phone with me, you know, for a while. I pulled it together and I waited. And uh, so he, you know, after about an hour or more hour out there, he texts me that the test the tests look okay. And now he's going to give him fluids and send him home. And for some reason, that news was so good. I can't even explain it. I think I'd forgotten you know, what good news felt like. And it's only good in the context of like, he's not dying that day. You know, right now, like I just have to, you know, accept that it's not renal failure. He's old. He's got a death rattle. So, you know, I brought him home and in the last few days he's been, uh, I just have to accept it, man. This is the, this is, this is how he's going to be. I don't know when Yeah, I got nothing to do here at the house sometimes. And I just obsess about the cat. About like when's that gonna happen? Is he okay now? Is he now? Is he now? Is he okay now? Do I do I gotta bring him in again? Is it now? What should I do for the cat? And the fucking cat is sixteen years old. He's sick. But he's not dying of kidney failure. And I don't know what happened. I brought him home and like I said, I tried to give him his medicine. He's he's you know, he's not with it that well. He's not that together. It's a fucking cat, monkey. Spends a lot of time uh, kind of hiding, but then he came out and then he comes out. He spends like the second half of the day downstairs on the couch in the last few nights. He's been sleeping a good part of the night next to my head and he's acting like he did when he was like uh, a lot younger cat, a lot more frail, but I don't know. I guess he's just showing up for me. I, I don't know how to look at it. You know, it's like I look at, you know, I, you know, I'm trying not to look at myself as some sort of victim and that this is just fucking life and this is just the way this times out. You know, I lost my girlfriend, my cat's old and sick, probably get COVID, get through that, maybe. That'd be the fucking worst ending of this story, is if I fucking die of that shit. But who fucking knows? There's no rhyme or reason to it. I'm not going to start putting things together. My brain wants to. What am I supposed to learn from this? What did I do? What is this payback for? It's just fucking life, and I'm not that special. You know, that's what's interesting about these religious fanatics and these fucking whack jobs who've decided this is all God's will or that, you know, God doesn't want them to be, to wear masks. It's amazing how many of these people refer to their doctors who have told them not to wear masks. That seems to be a talking point delivered to the QAnon jerks. Just say your doctor says it's dangerous for your health. How many of these people are going to their doctor asking them about their masks and who the fuck are these doctors they going to? I'm assuming that's bullshit, but just this God's will constitutional business, just people are losing their fucking minds. 
And as it goes on, this thing we're all living through, the more people that were detached or didn't care as much in the beginning or were into him to Trump or whatever, this is what's left. What's left of the people that can't see reality? It's people ranting and raving about the breath of God and that we must be able to breathe. My doctor told me I can't wear a mask. You guys are muzzling me. This is communist. What do they wait for this to, t- to actually rise up? This is what they're rising up about? Not the planned and gradual corporate destruction of all their lives that they somehow twisted into something they have to live with and still be enamored by corporatists and fascists. No, it's the masks. Like little doggies who don't want to wear the cone on their head so they don't gnaw at their own wound. We want to be able to gnaw at our own wounds. Don't muzzle us. Come on. So, monkey's okay. That's where we're at. The best thing that can happen is he dies, you know, in in his sleep, you know, in my house. But it was weird. That little bit of good news got me through a day anyways, a couple of days. Just a feeling of it. Even if it's not that great. But I do know he's old and I do know he's had a good life. I will tell you this. Tom Papa, the comedian, brought me a nice round homemade bread. And because I decided I was dying anyways, I've eaten most of it. Slathered it with butter, jam. Maybe it's a, called a peasant loaf. It's Maybe it's a... I don't think it's a sourdough. I don't know what it is, but it's a homemade bread and it was perfectly done. So Tom, I guess like some other comics, is uh, sort of finding their way into the future. That uh, if we can't ever do what we used to do the way we did it or the way we want to do it, I think Tom is going to... I told him, I I texted him, I said, the, the bread is very good. I fully support your future as a baker. And he texted, former comedian. I said, it's over for all of us. You're thinking ahead. And he said, I'll need someone to sit at the entrance drinking espresso and cracking wise. And I said, I'll do a shift. I'll do three. I'll do, I'll do all the shifts at your bakery, Papa. Thank you for the bread. It's very nice. People sending food is still very nice. So, Alan's Y. Bell. I'm going to talk to Alan's Y. Bell. He wrote a book. It's called Laugh Lines, My Life, Helping Funny People Be Funnier. It's available wherever you get books. He also co-wrote a film with uh, Billy Crystal, starring Billy and uh, Tiffany Haddish, called Here Today. Hopefully, well, the hope is for that to come out sometime soon. We talk about it a bit, so you'll hear me and Alan talking about that in SNL. He was one of the original SNL guys. We're going to do that in a second, just in a few minutes. And, uh... Well, maybe like this might be a nice thing to do. Why don't we start with this? I wanted to play a bit of this song. This is from a group out of North Carolina called the Get Right Band. They just released an album called Itchy Soul. And one of the tracks on it is called However Broken It Is. The lyrics on this track are actually all quotes I've said on this show. The band said that they spent so much time listening to WTF in the van that they wound up putting this song together. 
It's very flattering. So anyway, you can hear the track and the whole album on Spotify or at the getrightband.com. And here's a little bit of However Broken It Is, I guess written by me. They asked me about it. They asked me if they could do it. They asked me. Frustrations of being alive Frustrations of being alive Just trying to be Compassionate people And know yourself in the world And know yourself in the world just i finished the book like a 10 minutes ago i finished it (laughs) (laughs) so so i I know everything i don't don't, i'm not even sure i need to talk to you but um no 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 but a lot has happened since you finished the book (laughs) (laughs) what well let's let's start at the end what's going on with the uh the tiffany haddish billy crystal movie it's done we were lucky enough to have it finished production sometime last uh november Billy's been, uh, I've seen it um, with a temp track, a temp audio track. And um, boy, it played great. 400 people or so at a test screening at a theater in Pasadena. So it's ready to be seen. It it may be a session or two away from being totally, totally locked. Picture, Picture is locked. And now the producers will have to make that decision. And it's a tough one, Mark, because... It, it, it runs the gamut of the emotions. So it's something that in a perfect world, which of course we don't live in right at this moment, you want 400 people to be laughing and then feeling sad, right. you know, to a communal thing. Yeah. I speak to the producer every so often and I think they're still weighing it. So um, I'm, I'm anxious for people to see it. Tiffany Haddish is amazing in it and uh, her relationship with Billy in it is really magical. It's a, um, you know, it's a love story without a romance. And uh, as you read in the book, you know, Billy's character is an older uh, writer and who's got the onset of dementia. And he's writing a book, which is an ode, an elegy to his deceased wife. And he wants to get the book finished before he loses all his words. And he's not doing well. And she comes along and they have a very funny, wonderful relationship. I'm really happy with this. It's very like I'm reading a book, and I, you know, you were just te- you're just telling me the story of this movie, and I'm you know, I'm getting choked up because I'm so raw now because of my recent loss. And then, sure. and then I start to realize 
you know, that a lot of your a lot of the stories in your book, I mean, you come to the end of this thing and and you've had to deal with loss a lot uh, in terms of close friends and certainly Gilda and, and then Gary. But I guess my question is, you know, just as somebody who's looking down the tunnel at this, because I, 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 I all my my parents are still alive and, you, you know, I'm fortunate, I guess, on most days uh, because of that. How did you deal with it? I mean, I know you talk about, well, you wrote the book about Gilda, right? I wrote a book called Bunny Bunny, which was recounting our relationship. And that was at the suggestion of my wife, Robin. It was a a few years later. Gilda died in 89. So this was like 92, 93. And she suggested that uh, I write something about the two of us. And I resisted it. And she said, listen, um, your best friend died. You haven't cried yet. So I think that writers um, are lucky in that they can access those parts of themselves where if they have to be expressed, they can be cathartic and they can be therapeutic at the same time. I did that with Gilda. And, you know, the last time you and I saw each other, um, after Gary's memorial, Shandling's, I felt the same thing. Um, when Gary died, uh, it was different than when Gilda died. Gilda had cancer. It was a wider turn, you know, and so it was expected, still a shock, still, you know, a lot of grief. But with Gary, there was, um, especially because he and I were somewhat estranged after we finished our show, and we were working our way back toward each other. And so when I would write to him and say, how you doing, man? It was just a greeting. Yeah. And when he would write back and say, uh, getting better every day, I didn't realize it, Mark, until later on that he was being literal. Oh, really? And so when the news that he passed, yeah. was, wait a second, no, there's still more to talk about. We're almost back. We're almost there. And um, I think it was Variety asked me to write a tribute to him, and that was therapeutic. And when Judd Apatow asked me to speak at his memorial, that also gave me the opportunity to revisit Gary, you know, and maybe fill in some of the blanks or complete some of the the arcs that weren't completely closed yet. And um, that was a big reason for writing this book. It was when I saw you at the end of that memorial, I remember flying home to New York with my wife and I told her that we ran into each other and I said, you know, I'm li- I would really like to do Mark Maron's show. And in that same conversation, I said, you know, I, I this was therapeutic about Gary, but I need a little bit more. And that was part of the impetus of writing this book. Oh, yeah. Good. But, but were you able to cry or was the writing enough? Writing's not enough. It, uh, it, it's, it's an exercise. It's... Um, yeah, there's a catharsis there, but no, I, I think crying is important. At least it is for me. It's uh, <laughs> it's the raw, it's such a raw emotion. It's so um, when I, it's the kid in us. It's the helplessness of it. It's the oh my god, I, I there's something bigger and stronger that I out there that did this and I can't do anything about it. And I think that that's in its own way, very, very healthy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was glad I was able to get to that part. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting as a comedian, you know, that we have a million different ways in our brain to sort of rechannel those feelings of sadness that it's actually, you know, sometimes I, I think with grief, you're not given much choice after a certain point. It's going to come out. I think it has to. And as much as we try to either keep it down or be objective about it or place it in a rational perspective, I think that there's something so primal. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's um, once again, it's just help me. I, I, I'm helpless right here. I, I miss someone. I just lost someone. My mom died six weeks ago in the middle of the COVID. So we experienced similar things where, um, you know, there was no funeral service. There were three people allowed at the cemetery. There was no shiva. And I had a virtual cottage with friends who I grew up with. It was the, it was the older faces of the kids. Yeah to come to the house and I needed that and it was only afterwards that I cried when everyone said good night thank you everyone I just went and I, I it's 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 a good thing it's a good thing yeah I think and it also it turns out like the thing that's happening with me as I move through it is just that it's fundamentally human. I mean, it's like everyone's going to feel it at some, uh, to some degree at some point in their life and, and, and always have. Human beings have carved this you know, channel in our brains and in our hearts since the beginning of realizing we're human. And it's just the way it is. It's, it's as natural as, uh, as, as being born or processing anything else. It's just horrendous when it's surprising. You know, once again, if it takes a wider turn, okay, rationally, you can go, okay, I know this is going to happen. Yeah a sudden you know it's whiplash you go what the hell is that you, it, it takes a little while i think and this is what it was with gary it was there was a suddenness to it so there's the shock there's the disbelief there's the trying to make sense of it there's the fact gathering there's the phone calls you know to, to judge what, what happened yeah tell me fill me in and once that sinks in and you're down to the raw part of it Okay, you got all the knowledge and all the facts you need, then um, it's time for the human kid to take over. That's right, and and it's interesting in the in the way you write about the whole that you see this in some ways. It's sort of uh, it's not just a a, a, a memoir, but it, it is sort of an elegy for for the show business that you grew up in, you know, and that you came up in. It, it's you know, it's interesting. One of the reasons that I wrote it aside from what we just discussed, was I realized that, and it was pointed out to me when I would give public speeches, you know, and um, starting in the Catskills, selling jokes for $7 a line to those comics who I used to see as a little kid when my, my parents took us up there on holiday weekends, and then SNL, and then some of the other things that I did, like Shanley and Curb and some of the other things, where, okay, how many people span that amount of time with those different amounts of sensibilities? And I thought that, okay, this is an interesting thing to write about. Um, and as far as the Catskill part is concerned, yeah. I, I, when I look back at it, when I was writing this, I'm going, okay, what jokes did I write for Freddie Roman? Oh, what jokes did I 
write for Mickey Marvin, <laughs> jokes that I write for Morty Gunty, names that I didn't necessarily think of in a while, but there's a nostalgia to it. And there's something about, you know, in that particular case, there is no Catskill culture anymore. No. It used to be all hotels and they tell these jokes and yeah, they were corny and this and that, but they still made me laugh. Wasn't necessarily speaking to our generation, but at the same time, yeah, they were funny and now that's not there. But but also it seems that like you know, one of the things that I feel from you is that you know there is an emotional connection to all these guys. I mean, you know, you do there is the job of writing jokes and, and coming up with uh you know, stuff for these guys that you used to watch when you were a kid. But for me, like I, I, for some reason, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit younger than you. I'm 56, but I grew up watching Jackie Vernon, you know, uh, Buddy Hackett, these guys on television when I was very young and, and they, they, I still feel close to them. I don't, I never even met them. So I have to imagine that with all this stuff, there is some part of your emotional spectrum that is deeply attached to these guys. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's very much so. There's a connection to grandparents. There's a, a connection to parents. There's there's, a, a, there's an affection for um, people who uh, looked at the world the way that they did. It, and it was interesting. I tell that story in the book about Henny Youngman. Yeah. Which one? Well, Henny Youngman, um, I was about 32 I had just joined the Friars Club because I had left SNL and I needed an office. So I joined the Friars Club because they had a lounge upstairs that I can use as an office. And I'm walking on 55th Street between Madison and Park, which is where the Friars Club is located. And this particular day or this particular time of day, there was no one on the street. So I make the turn onto 55th Street and out of a doorway in front of me pops Henny Youngman. He doesn't see me. So yeah. he's concerned he's alone because there's no one on the street. And he crosses the street to go up to the Friars Club. And just as he reaches the curb, a pigeon flutters down, lands at his foot. He looks at the bird and goes, any mail for me? And he didn't know I was there. <laughs> he, he, he was, that was his knee-jerk reaction. And so there was a culture. There was a mindset and there's something I find that's very, very romantic. It was not cerebral at all. It was just wanting to be funny. And, it, and, as, and the kid in me was always attracted to the fun of that, the fun of that. There was a guy named Gene Balos yeah. who used to hang out at the Friars Club. Older man, sad sack, kind of big, droopy eyes like a beagle. And I was introduced to him by another comedian named Corbett Monica, who said, Gene, I want to introduce you to Alan. He's a very funny writer. And Gene Palos looks at me and he goes, yeah, I hear you're funny. You know who else is funny? My dentist. (laughs) And he opens his mouth and like 40 chiclets come out as if they're his teeth. (laughs) I sit here today. I don't know if he knew I was coming and he shoved the chiclets into his mouth or that he walked around with chiclets all day with the hopes that he was going to meet somebody so he could do that joke. And I don't know who replaces that. So, yes, there is an affection and there is a connection to it. Yes. And I and I and I also like that you really sort of 
appreciate these particular people because I'm a I've been a comic for years and there's always that and you started out one but there's always these guys whose brain you can't even wrap your brain around how quick they are how clever they are how you know consistently funny they are and all you know when you know those people is that you love them and that you're never going to be as fucking funny as they are Uh, you're absolutely right look you know let's let's um concede let's say we're all funny let's say we all are talented yeah there are people though who are on a different plane than everyone yeah is what do you mean so when i was with snl if michael o'donoghue wrote a sketch about a product called shimmer which was a combination floral wax dessert topping <laughs> I just throw up my hands and I enjoy the ride. Yeah. Acroid writing Basimatic where you can ultimately drink a fish. Yeah. You know, there's a, um, on uh, Friday nights, we have a, uh, a zoom cocktail party. Um, Robin and I, my wife and I, are the only ones from New York and everybody else is LA. So it's a lot of fun during this pandemic. It started about six weeks ago. And, um, so there's, uh, Billy Crystal and his wife and, uh, Barry Levinson, his wife, Rob Reiner and his wife, um, Marty Short, uh, and Albert Brooks and his wife. Albert is one of those people. Yeah. When he talks, everybody just sits back and goes, wow. <laughs> it's, it's a, there's a wow factor. Larry David, when, when I used to see him at the clubs when we were starting out in 74, I'd sit in the back and go, this guy thinks differently. Well, it's funny, though, because like you mentioned Michael O'Donoghue and Dan Aykroyd in the first season of SNL. And like those two things, like particularly the Shimmer, Four Wax, uh, Dessert Topping and Basomatic. Yeah, these are non-Semitic people. And you know, <laughs> that's true. And and the logic of those type of jokes, we're never going to do that. <laughs> It's, it's, that's why that's exactly right. They, it's not only a different culture. It's not only a different mindset. There's a part of the brain that we Semites have not, I don't think it exists, let alone developed. Okay. No, there's one outlier, you know, Andy Kaufman. I mean, it's the one outlier who, yeah. who somehow like, uh, was able to, you know, launch out of that orbit into what his own thing. But I mean, there's a logic to uh to jewish joke writing and jewish humorous thoughts like for me my generation like like you know david tell there's nobody like david tell really in, uh-huh. in terms of writing jokes i mean he's the the natural i was just thinking about this the other day because i was watching i got i got into some rodney dangerfield rabbit hole and i really started to think about you know the sad sack the guy who embodies that type of misery who was truly miserable and needed to to sort of construct these jokes just to keep himself from falling into a pit of self <laughs> that he might not get out of, you know? And like in just realizing the joke writing skills of Vitell and and just the nature of those the 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 rhythm of it and the Jewishness of it. And I, you know, I guess it's I guess I have a sort of weird Jewish exceptionalism idea, you know, around humor and around the guys that used to make me laugh. But I think it's a real thing. I mean it's a it's a Jewish thing. Comedy in America, you know, uh, from from you know vaudeville, it was a yeah, Jewish thing. 
Oh, absolutely. It harkens back. We want to go further, whether it's Shalom Aleichem or any of, the, any of those stories that which gave way ultimately to Fiddler on the Roof. But if you go vaudeville with it, I love looking at those old posters to see what the, the lineup was for this vaudeville act. You know, yeah, and there was a headliner, but the, the undercard were people like Milton Berle and the Marx Brothers. Yeah. And, 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 and they, you go, Jew. Jew, it was, you know, uh, Jack Benny. I mean, it just keeps going. It's just funny because, like, it was such an effort of those, you know, that generation or the, you know, first or second generation immigrants to sort of, you know, somehow get into American society to somehow figure out a way to to say, integrate themselves. It's like that. That we couldn't we couldn't play football, right? Okay, but there were and with a few exceptions. It was, was that? There's a lot of Jewish boxers I didn't know about. I was just going to say that Barney Ross was, was a Jew. There's a couple of them. Uh, Benny Leonard was a Jew. So there were Jewish boxers. We got in that way. Gangsters. But, well, Hyman Ross. Yeah. Yeah, Meyer Lansky. Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah, we did find our way in in different places. But um, comedy, it, it's sort of fascinating. Um and once again, I think it's, I think without trying to, you know, be overly lofty about it, it was part of the survival instinct. I think so. It yeah. Was, we, look, we got kicked out of every country in the world. We land here and go, all right, <laughs> this is pretty much it. There's no place else to go. Yeah. There was no Israel. All right, I'll try. It's like the new kid in school. Yeah. I'm not athlete oh i'll be funny that will make them like me yeah <laughs> it's like that lenny bruce line i can't i paraphrase it a lot i should try to find it about the king of egypt it's like bring the jew in he's charming bring the the jew <laughs> but uh uh but um i i forgot i i, I didn't uh, i kind of got away from me but i'm sorry to hear about your mother by the way okay thank you i appreciate that uh so so when you're growing up what it was just you and your sister is that what it was it was it was four of us. It was me, then two sisters, and then a brother. Oh, really? Well, the book is dedicated to my sister Fran, who also passed away about three years ago. But my other sister and my brother are still with us. Yeah. And you know what? What, what was the situation? You, what, I can't. What was your father's business? My father was uh, manufactured jewelry. Oh, right. Um, he made fine jewelry that he sold to, uh, you know, Tiffany, Cartier, places like that. Harry Winston. And as a little boy, well, little boy, young boy, like 11, 12 years old, his uh, his shop was on 52nd between 5th and Madison. And I would run errands for him. And wherever the errand had to go, I would go by way of 30 Rock. Yeah. It was then the RCA building because Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show upstairs. And in the mid-60s, there was a show called That Was the Week That Was. It had a guy named Buck Henry in it. It was produced by another guy named Herb Sargent. And there were people in that building doing what I wanted to do someday. So when I reported to work the very first day of SNL to that same building, this was, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 years later. My God, you can't even imagine the thrill. But you knew them when you were 10. You knew about Herb Sargent. You knew about, uh, well, Johnny, obviously. But you, you knew the, the, the people behind the scenes in the business. You were that obsessed? I was obsessed. Yeah, I was obsessed. I used to watch the credits. I saw who made me laugh. You know, look, when the when the old Dick Van Dyke show came on the air, right? Yeah. All right, here's this guy, Dick Van Dyke, nice looking guy, married to a very pretty uh Laura. 
Petri and they had a kid. So there's a family and they live in New Rochelle, nice house. And he spends his day lying on a couch, joking around with Buddy and Sally. I went, I'd like to do that. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a cool way to get a nice house and a nice, you know, life. But so, but you didn't, you know, you evolved through uh, failing as a comedian, which uh, I, I, I've, I've always, you know, I've, I, I was never a writer for other people, and uh, I used to, it just used, to, I always used to have such respect for the guys who I started out with, who, uh, who knew enough about the, the themselves and about the business. To when they were stand-ups, to realize that this I'm not this is not going to be. <laughs> yeah, unless you wanted to see a big Jew sweating and stammering, <laughs> no, I was not your guy. But you know, Mark, it, it, it was calculated. Also, I, having written in the Catskills for all those guys for seven dollars a joke for a couple of years, and the Catskills were dying, so it was no longer the breeding ground. For young comedians. Did you work up there with, um, didn't, who else? I, I knew, I've talked to other people that wrote for those guys. Was it Richard Lewis? It was Richard Lewis and I both wrote for a comedian named Morty Gunty. Right. Morty Gunty was the first guy who gave me $7 for a joke that I had written. And I How started did that happen? Writing. My mother and father, I had graduated college. From where? Uh, University of Buffalo. I thought maybe I wanted to be a lawyer, but the law school said, no, you don't want to be a, a lawyer. They <laughs> saw my boards and they, they no, nah, no, nah, you don't, no, nah, no, nah, be a writer. So I moved back in with my parents after college and my mother and father went to a Lake Tahoe and they, uh, for a weekend, I guess. And they went to the nightclub and they saw a show. The headliner was Engelbert Humperdinck. And the opening act was a Catskill comic named Morty Gunty. My mother ran into him the next morning in the coffee shop of the hotel that her son wants to be a writer. He gave her contact info. I called him. I started writing for him. And then when the jokes I wrote for him uh, worked, other Catskill comedians say, who wrote that uh, pacemaker joke? Oh, Alan. Oh, let me have his number. And so I had my own little, uh, you know, bullpen yes. you know filled people that i wrote for <laughs> when i saw that the catskills were dying all the guys that were going to be big stars already were there the buddy hackett steen martins jerry lewis's Tody fields alan kings they had already graduated and the catskills were dying they were hanging on because they were hoping that gambling would come there and resuscitate the place like it had done with atlantic city that never came so I said, and also this was like writing for my parents' friends. I was 22 and 23. They're 45. But it's also too interesting is that those guys, like the guys you mentioned that came out from the first wave of the Catskills or that, you know, post-Vaudeville, is that, you know, a lot of those guys like Freddie Roman, Morty Gunty, and a lot of them were always sort of like second stringers in a way, right? They were opening acts for singers. They were even opening acts for other comedians like Tody Fields, when she was a headliner, uh, the first half of the show would be a Morty Gunty and let's say a musician of some kind. Then there'd be an intermission and then Tody Fields would come out. So yeah, the, and they, those headliners, let's say it was Tom Jones or Engelbert Humperdinck or, or any of those singers, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, that was their ticket to Las Vegas. 
That was their ticket to theaters in the round and bigger rooms than existed up in the Catskills. And, um, but once again, when I was 22 and, you know, I didn't want to write jokes about paving the driveway. It wasn't in my life experience. There was Woodstock, you know, there, there was Vietnam. Nixon just resigned last, you know, uh, uh, the next year. So it was Watergate and all of that. So there were two clubs in New York with improvisation, Catch a Rising Star, and the plan was to go on stage, tell the jokes that those guys wouldn't buy from me, and advertise material with the hopes that a manager or an agent would come in and want to represent me as a writer. Oh, so with you, it was never like, I'm going to be the next, I'm not going to be Robert Klein. I'm going to- Oh, no, there was no way I could be Robert Klein. It, 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 it was not, it was not, I would sit in the back and watch Robert Klein and the, and the, and the group that came up a, a, around the time that I first went there was Billy Crystal, Larry David, Elaine Boozler, Andy Kaufman was there. Um, they, they were all starting to work. 74? To 74. So I, I was introduced by Richard Belza, who was usually the MC, and he said, now we have a very funny writer. And Alan's white belt. Right. But it's, uh, but so you were hanging around to catch with those guys and you went r- r- running around to the improv. Where, but where were you living? Were you, what was your day job? Uh, I was living with my parents on Long Island. I moved into my old bedroom after college. And to supplement this great living I was making, writing jokes for $7, I um, got a job in a delicatessen on Hillside Avenue in Queens. You name it, I sliced it for about two years. So I would write jokes while I was slicing meat or serving a soup. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, the deli thing, that's another thing that, like, is almost gone, you know? Like, I, 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 I had a job at a, a real old-school deli. It was actually in the Boston area. But that whole, like, there's something comforting. And, I'm, again, I'm a little younger than you, but I got it through my grandparents or through, it's a generational thing, this Jewish tradition or these li- ways of life that uh, that are sadly sort of passing because I could feel that there's a nostalgia even in reading the book with the with the generation you know two before you that were still alive at some points in this book yeah. that there was really this sort of and how you talked about your ability to write for you know Billy's family because the players were essentially even if you didn't know them they were all the same Eastern European Jewish thing these were not Martians yeah. you know. <laughs> When, when we did 700 Sundays, when I collaborated with him on it, yeah, I was writing for a cast of characters that I hadn't met. Yeah, I knew his brother. Yeah. I, didn't know, I think I met his mom once. Never met his dad, never met uncles, aunts, certainly not grandparents. I wrote for my own family. Yeah. You know, we all have the same family. They just jump from album to album. That's funny. <laughs> you know, it was the same people. Yeah, there's always the one old aunt that only spoke Yiddish. That's right. That's right. And then they, there was the uncle who uh, told inappropriate jokes right. when you were four. <laughs> you know exactly. <laughs> They're all the same. But could you, how good were you at uh, slicing Nova, really? I mean. Uh, not good. Too thick. Too thick. And they go, wait a second, you cut away the gray. It was a nightmare when I handed that. <laughs> that Nova thing was tricky. Those That was the difference between like a guy who had uh, other plans and a deli guy. Well, that's absolutely right. It, because the guy who wanted to be a deli guy, knew to take the knife and put it at an angle and you sliced it 
you know, sideways. Right. It was thin. Sometimes you can see through it. But me, I'm just I'm giving them chunks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm giving them basically end cuts of locks. And you, and <laughs> and then the deli guy says, you're ruining the whole fish because I got to start at an angle. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. So a catch rising star at that time is a Rick Newman running the place. And it must have been in the 74. It must have been. A very exciting uh, place to be, I would imagine, right? Oh, it was a hotbed because not only did you have all of the comics who were on their way up, but you would have on any given night, David Brenner would come in and work, uh, do, uh, try out his set for his next Carson shot. Or Robert Klein would do um, an hour trying out the material for his new upcoming album. Yeah, you see that? See that? What you just said right there is why he annoys me, is that you know, he would go up, right, probably on a weeknight, do an hour, and there were three guys that were looking to do their eight fucking minutes who no one That's knew. That's exactly right. Waiting around at the yeah. bar going, fuck. Uh, now I'm going on fuck, at 2.30, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly right. What should have been 10 o'clock is now 2 in the morning. Yeah. That's absolutely right. <laughs> you know, and that doesn't change, you know. Uh, at the comedy cellar, I hear that's going on today when somebody walks in, you know, and you go, "Oh fuck!" So yeah, the audience loves it, but if you if you're waiting around, no, it's a, it's a night. Oh no, I used to like I like if I'd be at the cellar, even at the comedy store now, like and I see like if Chappelle's gonna walk in or whatever, and I'm and I'm be like, "Oh, you got to be fucking kidding me!" So now, <laughs> and, I, and I would usually just say, you know, I'm just gonna go home because I'm gonna go home. I don't need this shit. But you know, most of the time, you know, I may not be a huge star, but yeah, you know, most of the time, those guys are like, you know, let, I'll go on after Mark. Let him go and do his thing. Oh wow, yeah, that's very nice. It is nice. I, I guess I earned that not to be bumped. No, 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 no. That's to your credit, and uh, let accept the compliment. And uh, it is, it is a compliment. Now, was Larry David? Was it fun watching him? Mark, it was it was remarkable to watch him because Larry thought differently than anyone. So it was remarkable to watch him because he would either kill in a way that nobody else could because he was saying things, talking about things, singing like nobody else did with total abandon or, or with the same material on the next night, he would go so far into the toilet it wasn't funny. And so the few months that I was a stand-up, let's say um, he was on at nine. I'm making this time up, okay? Yeah. And so, so the next act comes on at 9.20. If I knew I was following Larry, I'd also get there at nine because <laughs> within 30 seconds, if he looked at, he would get on stage. And in those days, he had hair like Larry Fine from the Three Stooges, yeah. okay? Sort of brillowy and wire rimmed glasses and an army fatigue, a green army fatigue that said L. David on it. And on a Friday night back then, those clubs, it was suburbanites from Long Island or blue haired ladies schlepping their husbands with the madras yeah. <laughs> suit from Jersey. And Larry would get on stage and he'd look at them and goes, I feel very comfortable with you people tonight. In fact, I feel so comfortable, I'm thinking of using the two form of the verb instead of usted. Now, I'm sitting in the back laughing my ass off. A, I think it's funny. B, the audience has no idea what to make of this guy. They're, they're a gape. They're just like that. So, you know, 
you know, if a comic hits a roadblock, especially right out of the yeah. gate, you go a different way. Larry kept going. You'd say, I think a lot of people misuse the two form of the verb. When Brutus stabbed Caesar, Caesar said, A2, Brutus? And Brutus says, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If there was ever time for instead, it's now, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm holding my stomach, laughing, and there's like tumbleweed going down the aisles because everyone is just staring. They don't know what to make of this. Larry would look back and go, oh, fuck you. <laughs> He'd walk off the stage, and I'd get on at 9.01. <laughs> That was the pleasure of watching Larry. Yeah, it's, you don't see that anymore. Yeah. You know, it used to be back in the day before cell phones, people would lose their shit more. That's exactly right. He um, would do things with abandon, total abandon. And, and that's where Lorne Michael saw you? Lorne saw me at Catch a Rising Star. He was underwhelmed with my um, talents as a performer, like the material. So it was an audition night? No, no, I was already part of the um, uh, of the rotation. And they would either put me on very early or put me on like tomorrow. Right. <laughs> you know, And um, uh, Lauren was not impressed with me, but he liked the material and wanted to see more. And there was a, a, a William Morris agent named Leon Memoli who uh, submitted me to Lauren. And uh, I typed up what I thought were 1,100 of my best jokes. Yeah. And uh, I went back into the city two days later on the Long Island Railroad, met with Lorne, gave him this tome of 1,100 jokes. And he uh, opened the um, book. He read the first joke. He went, uh-huh. And then he closed the book. And uh, he said, how much money do you need to live on? And I said, well, I'm making $2.75 an hour at the deli. <laughs> Match it. <laughs> you know, thank God he laughed, you know. And um, he kept the book, obviously. I'm sure he went through all the jokes, had to show it to the execs at NBC. But it was the first joke. He would do that. I know of a couple of other instances, because when I spoke to Franken, Recently, Lorne had seen he and Tom Davis, their act, and it was one or two jokes that they did that told Lorne, okay, this is the sensibility of the guy. This is the way he thinks. Yeah. I got that sensibility on my show. What do you think his unique talent was from the beginning, you know, looking back over the arc of his continued success? In no special order, okay, I think recognizing talent I think um, keeping that talent together, you know, especially when that show became a launching pad, to, to keep people there to come back after they did the movie in the summer. Yeah. After they did whatever, you know. Um, back when I was there, when the show was first starting to take shape, Lauren's creative abilities were fantastic. You know, my triumvirate were Lauren, Michael O'Donoghue, and Chevy. Chevy was very funny back then. and But it was Lauren who, he created the palette where all these different sensibilities could be plugged in and be a part of the same 90 minutes. Yeah. So you could have something outrageous and then something softer. 
and it became a bit of a moving target. So um, his ability as an editor, as uh, you know, because my background was jokes, he would call me into his office and he would say to me, listen, I have an idea and I write about it in the book. Sid Bernstein had just offered the Beatles, I don't know, $250 million to reunite. Lorne called me into his office and say, I have an idea where I'm going to offer the Beatles (laughs) $3,000 to come on the show. And I started laughing because it's 3,000 versus 250 million or whatever it was. And he started ad-libbing what he, he wanted to go on the air with the check made out for $3,000 paid to the order of the Beatles. And he basically, I'm telling you, Mark, I might've had one joke in there, but it was me taking dictation what he wanted the beats of it to be. I, as a matter of fact, I don't think I wrote a joke. I think my only contribution was me saying, well, what about Ringo? <laughs> and he says, look, and as himself, as if he was on TV, he said, look, if you want to, saying to the Beatles, look, if you want to pay a Ringo less, that's your business. But that was Lauren. <laughs> that was all Lauren. So that was the guy that I worked for and with when I was there. And that was for, you were there straight through four seasons? Five seasons, um, the first five seasons of the show. And when Lauren left at the end of the fifth season, so it was the spring of 1980, he left and we all left. And that was it. That was the defining greatest period of your life. You know something? It's been a while since. A lot of nice things have happened. But my God, it wasn't until I left that I learned that, boy, this was a haven. You know, if, if I write something now, I write a book, I write a play, this movie that I did that's coming out with Tiffany Haddish and Billy, that took three years to write. Okay, so if I'm lucky, it sees a light of day two, three years from now. That show, you write something on Monday, it's on television Saturday. You write something, you know, after dress rehearsal, I'd go up to my office watch the 11 o'clock news. It wasn't 24-hour news then. It was the 11 o'clock news. And if something struck me as funny, I'd write a joke, and it would be on Weekend Update a half hour later. Yeah. Where do you get that kind of immediate feedback? Well, yeah, and also it's, like, addictive. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the gratification, the sort of, like, the rush of it. And it seems like, you know, from the beginning when you were there, you were there at the beginning, basically, so, you know, everybody came together and that relationship you built with Gilda seemed to be a model of how the show really began to work in terms of writers aligning themselves with with a particular act, uh, you know, talent and, and kind of. Yeah. But it seems like you and Gilda had this this thing where, you know, this this writing dynamic that, you know, both of you really sort of learned from and grew from. It was, a, you know, I, I guess you characterize it as a. Not a kind of a, at least a, a you never a, a, a non-actualized romance in a way. Well, yeah, the book that I wrote after she passed was Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner's a sort of love story because from the very outset, from the very first day, when we realized that we had a similar sense of humor and could make each other laugh, she declared that we would be writing partners but we'd also be platonic friends <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. And that part I was less thrilled about. 
So I always felt that you know, platonic, especially at that age, is usually one person who doesn't want it to be platonic, but all right, if these are the rules, I'll play by them. But one day you'll open your eyes and behold the glory that's in front of you. Yeah. And that went on for a long time, even to the when she got sick. She Her last TV appearance was on a show I co-created called It's Gary Shandling Show. She was on it. And then when she got sick again, uh, I went to see the Sinai to give blood. And um, I was lying on the gurney. And a, a nurse came up to me and gave me a pen and a pad. And I said, what's this? She said, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting. Write her something nice. You know, she's having a tough time. So I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another, which I, which pretty much sized up. <laughs> but but we, we did some nice things. We created Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. Um, you know, I wrote for everyone. I did the Samurais for Belushi, but Gilda was special. You know, she and she became Aunt Gilda to the kids. Yeah. You know, we became family. Yeah, it seems like you know you had a nice, a lot of nice relationships with uh, with people as time went on. And uh, the Bernie Brillstein thing—it's it, like I didn't really know Bernie Brillstein. I, after reading your book and after talking to as many people as I talked to, I realized that you know I've always been on sort of the periphery of show business like the because i never understood it to be a business i really think i got into right. stand-up comedy to somehow uh you know become a whole person you know the idea of you know like there was a way to manufacture a life out of it i just knew i wanted to be, i understand yeah so but i but i you know i know a lot of the people that you talk about and there's a generation my guys you know who were with bernie brillstein as well like cross and odenkirk and uh you know some of the other people that were more responsible sure. with their careers but I remember, here's the funny thing, you know, you say a lot of things about Brillstein, everyone's got a lot of things to say about him, but the one thing you didn't say, which I noticed only because, I, I think I've told this to Odenkirk too, and it's a weird thing to notice, but I'd never really met the guy, but I was in Aspen at the comedy festival, and I went to the men's room, and he was in the men's room, and he was one of those guys that dropped his drawers all the way, <laughs> just to pee, just to pee. <laughs> yeah, Bernie, <laughs> he was... You know, I can honestly say he was the first guy I saw do that. I would also go so far as saying he may be the last guy I ever saw do that. I didn't know that was a thing. I think, well, it is a zipper. What's that for? Yeah, I thought it's very funny. That thing, I got a really good laugh out of the, the things he told you to shove up your ass. He told me when we got together to sign, for me to sign with him, I said, okay, great, I, you know, because he was Lauren's guy. Gilda had just gone with him, Belushi and Aykroyd. He had the Muppets. And I felt that if I'm going to stay in New York, he was L.A., so there would be a presence. He, I would have an L.A. presence with him. So when he said, okay, I'll, I'll manage you, um, I uh, said, okay, so what happens now? We get a lawyer? And he said, <laughs> he told me to shove my lawyer up my ass. Because it was just a handshake that he, you know, reached across the table, but thirty years of a handshake. But uh, yes, that was not the first. That was the first thing he told me to shove up my ass. And at his memorial, I let a, I read a list of other things. Ovitz was up my ass. Sepulveda <laughs> Boulevard was up my ass. The internet somehow got up my ass. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't believe what was going on up there. <laughs> But you stayed with them the whole time, huh? Uh, until he passed away. It was 30 years. And, um, 
you know, if you speak to Marty Short, who was almost managed by, also managed by uh, Bernie, uh, Lorne was with him the whole time, much longer than me. It, there was a comfort there. There was a, he was a New Yorker. He played with the big boys. Uh, but at the same time, um, there was a soul. You know, I remember once my wife, Robin, and I, when we had our first child, Adam, we flew out to L.A. We did whatever business. And now we were going to take a ride up the West Coast to meet with Belushi, uh, who we hadn't seen in a while. So I would say this was February-ish of 82. John died a month later. And on our way up the coast, we drove up the coast. Bernie said, uh, I, I said to Bernie, I think we're going to stop at San Simeon. And he said, at San Simeon, go into the big room there. There's a dining room table. That's the biggest dining room table you'll ever see in your life. But at the end of it, where William Randolph Hearst sat, there's a bottle of ketchup. And that's what Bernie pointed out. And I realized, and I've spoken to others about this, that's who Bernie was. On the outside, he played with the big boys. He did all those things. But inside, if you cut him open, there was a pastrami sandwich you know, lying around. In there. Yeah. So that was, once again, the affection that you were talking about earlier, about the Catskill guys or any of these other people. Bernie, there was that quality about him also. So you saw Belushi a month before he died. Were you concerned? This is how naive I was. Uh, okay, John died, I want to say, the beginning of March. The preceding November, uh, Lorne produced a NBC special, a live special for Steve Martin. It was called Steve Martin's Best Show Ever. And I was a writer on it, and I think I was an extra. So all... And, and John and Danny were on it, okay? We shared, uh, it wasn't even a dressing room. It was a curtain. Behind that curtain, that's where we changed. And John was fat. And I'm, going, and I'm saying to myself, oh, wow, I'm happy that he's fat. Because I thought he wasn't, that meant he wasn't doing cocaine. Right. In February, which is now two months after that, when we went to see him, he was writing a movie called Noble Rot with Don Novello. We went to go see them. So it was the six of us, the three couples. John was behind the wheel of whatever car he had. And he was taking those San Francisco hills like, you know, remember the movie What's Up Doc or any of those other movies that take place in San Francisco where the cars take the hills and they're, they're flying. Like a, like a bullet? Like bullet. It's the same exact thing. And it was a little scary and all of that. But still... John was fat, and I go, okay, John may be a little hot. But when the call came, I had not heard of speedballing at that sure. point. It, they that term at that yeah. point, you know. Yeah. So I, um, I, I, it was then that I got that part of the education. Because I, I remember seeing pictures of, uh, of, of him, and, you know, he was, like, morbidly obese, wasn't he? Uh, he got he got really big, Mark. Yeah. And he was um, look, his indulgences went from one extreme to another. Sure. They would like his comedy. So whatever vices he had, whatever naughty things he did, there were a couple of times I told you I wrote the samurais for him. There was one time in particular where I took the first draft and I went downtown. I think it was on 11th or 12th Street here in New York. 
and there was a, a sauna called a Schwitz. Sure, down 10th Avenue Baths. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I went in there with the draft. The two of us are there going over the script because he used to go there and he used to be very blunt about it that that place was the reason he was able to survive as long as he, because he would sweat out yeah. whatever naughtiness he put into his body. Yeah, it, it's also, it's sad. I mean, but you still like, uh, do you talk, how do you, do you maintain, I guess you do, relationships with some of those people still like Frank and you seem to be friends with still, huh? Yeah, Frank and I speak to, I spoke to him for about two hours the other night. We speak once every couple of months. Um, and as he started to reemerge, this is before the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. He started doing some um, live appearances and uh, he wanted to, and we still may do it whenever this is all behind us. He wanted uh, to be in conversation with me at a couple of venues. And I would jump all over that in a second. He said, he's, you know, he's very funny, really funny. You know, if you played, I used to play, um, squash with him he would take me to the harvard club he had gone to harvard and you take your life in your hands because he would bounce off of walls it was his comedy it was just cutthroat it knew no limits and he just went for it he needed other people to say no no back 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 <laughs> because left to his own devices all hell broke loose well that's sort of interesting that you know you mentioned these guys from harvard a few times different guys you know, you've got that weird thing that we all have is like these fucking Harvard guys, you know, either, you know, I mean, you, you know, you're framing it as a positive thing, but there's always this weird kind of working class Jew envy of these guys that, you know, somehow came out of that. And, and in my mind, maybe not yours, it, it afforded them a sort of access that uh, not all of us had. Well, I, I don't disagree with you at all, you know, because when we started the show, Franken was the Harvard guy. And then Jim Downey came along. And then Jim was so successful for so long with the show. Um, it, it very much opened up the doors for whoever came afterwards. And it, be, and, and it became, Harvard Lampoon became, I won't say a breeding ground, but certainly, certainly, you know, if there was a list of the guys, not only for that show, but elsewhere, and it was an unlikely place at the time, You're, or, or seemingly so. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? You know? it, because, like, I, I mean, just by you talking about, you know, that his his you know cutthroat or you know playing uh, squash was it squash or racquetball? You know something, I want to say squash, but I could. But be either wrong. way, he was yeah. always going for the juggler, right? So, like, because I, I try to figure out what exactly is it about Harvard outside of. Uh, of nepotism. I guess there's something about the kind of kid who ends up going to Harvard ends up getting through Harvard that the, the ambition needs to be serviced at all costs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're a thousand percent right. And on the surface, it's an unlikely thing to happen. You know, Harvard people were supposed to become professors. They were supposed to be scientists. They're not supposed to be comedy writers back then. Sure, at least. you know that 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 it wasn't synonymous. But they were, with but it. they were supposed to run the world, Alan. They they yes, indeed. <laughs> They're supposed to run the world. We would all work for them, or at least listen to them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now the the relationship with um, 
Like it's interesting because I didn't realize that uh, that you know you didn't come up with Gary Shandling, you didn't know Gary Shandling, that it was all this, you know, chance. It was a Bernie thing. Bernie called me. Uh, I was sitting in a, a at the Friars Club in New York. I want to say it was '86. He called me. Uh, he had just joined forces. Bernie did with Brad Gray. Now, Brad Gray had a bunch of unknown comedians like Dennis Miller and Gary Shandling and John Lovitz and Dennis Miller and. Uh, Bill Maher, okay? And uh, Bernie asked me if I had heard of Gary, and I said, yeah, I'd seen him on uh, Let Him yeah. In. And he was funny. He was doing a Showtime special. And in Bernie, in his typical Bernie special, uh, you know, parlance, he said, uh, well, he's doing a special for Showtime that's headed right for the shit house. <laughs> if they don't help. I read it. I thought it was funny, and I went out yeah. there. And I uh, you know, I, I go into detail what it was like. I had never met, just like I had. Look, once again, I was a joke writer. So when I met the the Second City people at SNL, it was a new kind of comedy for me that I had to adapt to. And when I what sketch? It was well, he was this Jew from Tucson. I that that that, that didn't make sense that those two words went together, Jew and Tucson. Okay, and so when I went straight from the airport to meet Gary at a restaurant and he's wearing dark glasses throughout the whole dinner at night in a restaurant. So I couldn't get a sense of whether he liked my ideas for the script, whether he liked me. And we left and we said, okay, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. I didn't know if it was idle chatter. I had no idea. I checked into whatever hotel one o'clock in the morning, which is four o'clock for my body. Cause I flew out that day. The phone rings. I pick it up. Hello, Alan. It's Gary. Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his diet or what? <laughs> I'm going, just like O'Donoghue or any of these other people I'm talking about. I, I, I called my wife. I said, I think I found a writing partner. I could never, if I lived to be a thousand, I can't write that joke. It's on a different level. I even told one that he did at um, at the memorial. Uh, he would call six o'clock Sunday morning, and in those days there was no caller ID. Yeah. So if phone rang six o'clock Sunday, was one of two things: either someone was dead or it was Shanley. Yeah. And my wife used to debate which was worse, which was the worst news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The phone would ring. The phone's on her side of the bed. She'd just take it and hand it over to me. Hello, Alan, it's Gary. Hey, man, what's doing? Alan, I had a date last night. Yeah. He says, yeah, we were. I said, how did it go? He says, well, we were in bed, and the girl said, no fingers in the ass. And I said to her, look, it's my finger, and it's my ass, and if that's where I want to put it, you don't have a vote. <laughs> I, how do you write that joke? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. Like, I like that. These are the things that were like that. See that that that's an indicator that someone is 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 of another of another level of talent is the finger. Absolutely, the finger in the ass. We all use the same words. Yeah. That's right, Mark. We all sit down. We all have basically the same vocabulary, but they put those words in that order. I wouldn't have come up with that order for no. I, yeah, I used to do that, like with jokes, particularly just like with a tell, you know, where he he the, the simplest jokes where he'd be like, "I, do you remember when you realize your father's not a superhero, just a guy who wears a cape and drinks?" 
You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, the first time I ever went to Las Vegas was with Gary. I never went there when I was writing for those comics. I went with Gary and um, we were just starting to put our show together. And he was speaking this particular night. The gig was a Toyota convention. Yeah. There's 2,100 Toyota salesmen. And he comes out onto stage. The first words out of his mouth is there's nothing I like more to do after I jerk off than to talk at a Toyota convention. <laughs> oh, wow. And these guys were laughing, sure. you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was probably true, right? He's a comic. He was in his hotel room. I mean. Oh, yeah. No, no. He drew from real life. You're absolutely right. So that maybe that's a bad example because he was just recounting <laughs> something. <laughs> so so you guys did that show for that I you know I had no idea that lasted as long and you did as many as you did. It was 4 years, 72 shows, yeah. And then but you and him you know eventually started to grade on each other, is that what happened? Yeah, you know something of uh, the show was fun to do and it got a lot of publicity and it broke some rules and it was the first comedy show, first cable comedy show ever nominated uh for an Emmy award because before then it was the Cable Ace right. Awards. It, we weren't allowed. And, but towards the end, um, what happened was I'm now married with three children. I'm the commissioner of our son's little league. So we almost had a move because all the parents were pissed off at me because I rescheduled the rain out the day of, you know, Sheldon Finkelstein's bar mitzvah. That meant that little AB couldn't pitch because he was gone. It was, and I wanted to write about that. Gary was playing a single guy, a comic named Gary Shandling, and he couldn't relate to that. And I wanted to start flexing different muscles. So I grew a little frustrated that I couldn't express that stuff. He grew frustrated with me because I now had divided focus. And so by the time the show ended after four years, we were barely speaking. Yeah. And um, it was my wife, Robin, who, uh, uh, saw that he was playing in Atlantic City. We had a home in New Jersey, and uh, she saw in the paper what hotel. She called him. She says, I'm bringing down Alan. I'm throwing you in a, a room together, and you're not coming out until you're friends again. You've been through too much together. And that was the beginning of the rapprochement. And then those basketball games that you alluded to, you know, on Sundays, everyone who was in town, whether it was Judd or Franken or Ben Stiller, do you play in any of those? No, I knew I knew about him. I wasn't I wasn't really uh, out here in that crew. I was a uh, yeah. I didn't I didn't ever went over there and played. It was it it was a fun thing uh, because it was older guys now with diminished skills if they ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> they, were now, they were now diminished. But it was a way of being together and was doing something. And when, and as Franken says, and I was the worst basketball player. It was like my arms and legs were never introduced to each other. And I remember once Gary, he was starting to make up, and he points out, he says, "You take, you guard her." And I'm now I'm getting mad at him again. I'm going, "Great, I gotta, I gotta guard the girl." That's what he thinks of me. And it's it's Sarah Silverman, and she's popping. 
three-pointers from out there and driving here and grabbing rebounds and stuff. And she was really, and that's how I became friendly with Sarah. That became a way for people to meet each other. And it was nice. But when I broke Frank and when I broke his thumb, it was just me trying to swat the ball out of his uh, hand. And Judd Apatow says that I broke his shoulder. And he says to this day, whenever he puts a shirt on, yeah. which I imagine is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> He's what he thinks of me. He's, he doesn't stand right. He's, there's something off of him. Yeah, he's, he's a little lopsided. Yeah. It's, I, it's really kind of uh, amazing, I guess, to you as well, in, in terms of some of the in in terms of the way you write about in the book that you know this that your career sort of evolved, you know, into other things, and then you know you started getting into theater once the TV. But you're very, you know, I, I guess maybe in retrospect, maybe when you're in it, I don't know that you realize that there is a changing of a guard. There is a, a change in tone and people's experience. Like younger guys are going to be more fit to do, you know, the younger guy things in terms yeah. of what's culturally relevant and what isn't. And, but, you know, you still keep plugging along and that, you know, in the stuff with, that you did with Billy, the, the theater stuff, the 700 Sundays, I mean that you know that that was a big evolution. I, it's it's sort of like your career has been kind of amazing, don't you think, as a writer? Well, what I well, I appreciate you saying that. What I think has been um, noteworthy about it is that there's a sixth sense that if you're writing with somebody for that person, yeah. at best you're vice president. Okay, the, the subtitle of the book is you know, my life helping funny people be funnier. So that's the gig. And um, the ego is set aside. As far as the different voices are concerned, I think that what I've learned along the way is that, I'm, you know, I just turned 70 a couple of weeks ago. How the hell that happened, I don't know, okay? But Billy Crystal, with whom I just did this movie, is a couple of years older than me. And the guys who came up, Marty Short is 70. So we're all that age now, and everyone has been able to sustain, and I think part of the reason is, okay, what is our sensibility? Where is my strength? Let me stay with that. Let me do that, and with every hope that there's an audience still for that voice. You know, when we first moved to LA, this was, oh my God, 35 years ago now, when the Shandling Show started, we lived in Brentwood, and uh, Brentwood Country Mart had a uh, a luncheonette there that I would go there on my way to the studio and stop by, and there was a table that had a few of the older writers who wrote for Jack Benny's show and Burns and Allen, and I I sat at a table across the aisle from them, but eavesdropping, wanting to, my God. This is Mount Rushmore here. But what I heard was bitterness. These were guys who had trouble getting work now. They were older. And they were putting down the younger comics, the younger sensibility, the younger shows. And I didn't want to then introduce myself and soak in all their wisdom because I didn't hear it. And it stayed with me. And the idols that I had and still have the guys like Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks and Norman Lear. My friend Buck Henry died in December. He was 89 and still writing a book. So it was people who, okay, this is who I am right now. Let me be true to that. 
I, I think an audience can detect fraudulence from a mile away. You know, this movie that I just did with Billy that I described earlier where there was somebody where he placed somebody with the onset of dementia. I couldn't have written that five years ago. Certainly not 10. Then my dad started having it. You go, oh, wow. Okay. Billy's uncle had a, had a wife. Um, she started having it. And so, you know, okay, I now live in this place. This is now my experience. Let me write about it. And hopefully the baby boomer generation is still big enough that there are people who are experiencing the same things. Yeah. And also, like, I, I think there obviously are, but it's a matter of getting them to see the thing. It's become everything is so fragmented and, uh, and uh, you know, all over the place. It used to just be you turn on one of three networks or you go to the fucking movies. When we started SNL, there was not even Fox. Yeah. It was Able, ABC, NBC, CBS. That was television. Yep. You're absolutely right. A couple of years ago, something I did, a documentary that I, uh, I, I produced, was nominated for an Emmy. So we went out there, my wife and I, and I'm sitting there at the Emmy Awards watching people who I never heard of go up and accept awards for shows I never heard of that were on networks I never heard of. The other thing that, you know, that that is sort of uh, amazing is that I, I don't know, like when you sit and think about it, I mean, it must have been great to, to write this book because like just me, you know, reading your reflections, I was getting a kick out of stuff and that, you know, you but it, to speak to our point that, you know, when you were at the SNL and they had Milton Berle host that, you know, the, and you tell that nightmare of a story. But, you know, the sort of mythic, you know, uh, the mythology around Milton's dick and how big it was that, you know, not only was he a horrible person, but you found out that he did actually have a huge dick. You know, that's the beginning of television. But then, you know, and you understood why everybody didn't like Milton Berle. But then you go to that next generation of our show of shows and those guys and you got to know them and, you know, and respect them and their loyalty to each other. And then you get down to the next generation, which is uh, probably, uh, you know, you, you guys. Sure. So but, you know, so it's interesting that I, I think that your generation is the last to have that connection to the source. You know what I mean? Well, it may be, it may be, we grew up, look, if I'm 70, that means I was born in 1950. Um, so when I became aware of television, it was 56, 57, 58, and the SNL group that I was with, was the same, we were all the, the same age, okay? Then it was the early 60s, and we grew up on TV. It was still early enough that our parents would be watching you know, the genealogy was as such where Milton Berle was not respected, but Ernie Kovacs right. was, because he played with the form. He took this new medium and, you know, he would tilt the camera and then he would slide <laughs> off the screen. You, yeah. you know, you go, wow, that's pretty cool. As opposed to wearing a dress and blackening your teeth. Yeah. There, there, was, there was a difference between um, the, uh, the broadness of something and the cleverness that when, when we were doing its Gary Shaling show, Edie Adams, who was um, Ernie Kovacs' wife, it was the biggest compliment in the world that not only did, did she appear on the show, she would hang out at the studio because we did things that were reminiscent to her. But you're absolutely right. The broadness of some of it, whereas it's worth mentioning in, that, in the book, when Rob Reiner had 
uh, a screening one night at his house, which was in the most, I, I think about it often, he would have a screening of a movie and he would have somebody connected with the movie there. So afterwards, it would be like a masterclass where we'd ask a thousand yeah. questions. A particular night he showed 10 from your show of shows and Caesar's Hour. And I purposely sat with my wife in the next to the last row of the screening room because the guests of honor who sat in the last row were Carl Reiner and his wife, Larry Gelbart and his wife, um, Sid Caesar and his wife, and Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft. So look at the bodies of work that were behind me. And we, the kids, are watching this. Billy Crystal and his wife, Larry David. Okay, Hanks was there. And we're watching this and laughing. It's still sustained. And I'm listening to them go, oh, yeah, uh, Doc Simon wrote that sketch. And then somebody else will say, yeah, but uh, Woody came in and gave him the joke about the eyeglasses. Yeah. They were footnoting it 40, 45 years later. Crazy. It was astounding. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's just like, and I'm sure you could do that with the first uh, two seasons of SNL. Oh, yeah. If, if I should watch a show, I it's funny. Not only do I remember who wrote it, the five seasons that I was there, I can tell you how it did in read-through. Yeah. It, 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 the, it, the, the impressions that this made at that age are indelible. Yeah. You know, the roots are deep. One of the one of the funniest moments for me in the book, like I underlined it, was uh, you know you 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 you're married. You you it's you just get back from your honeymoon, <laughs> and you, you you realize that you know your wife doesn't really quite know what what she's getting into, marrying a comedy writer, and then uh, and then the phone rings at two in the morning. I, I pick up the phone. We, we we're not even unpacked. We were dead to the world. The luggage is there. We're in, in, in bed, two o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. And I go, hello? Oh, Alan, it's Rodney. <laughs> hey, man. Alan, when we were growing up, we were real poor. <laughs> All right, uh, how poor were you? Uh, we were so poor that uh, come Christmas, we couldn't afford tinsel for the tree. We used to wait for my grandfather to sneeze. <laughs> the joke made me laugh. The situation made me laugh. My poor wife, this is what she's in for. And then Rodney says, what do you think, funny? I go, yeah, really funny. He goes, yeah, that's what I thought. He hung up. I didn't hear from him for about two years. <laughs> so, I don't know if I'm the only person he called or he got up to the Z's and it got up to the Z's at two o'clock in the morning. My guess is that's what it was. And yeah. And so when Shanling started doing it, it was like the torch was passed. Did you write for Did you write for Rodney? Yeah, I wrote him a few jokes. I, um, it was easier to have you know. With that, I don't get no respect. Yeah. Easier to have him say, even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She liked me as a friend. Right. Okay, yeah. that was easy uh, uh, during the civil. Uh, no one in my family family ever got any respect during the Civil War. I had an uncle who fought for the West. Yeah, those kinds of things. <laughs> generous and to be with Rodney was to be with a certain segment of history because he used to hang out at Hanson's Drugstore where all of the comics used to hang out 
because the agencies were upstairs. It was 1650 Broadway here in New York. So with the hopes that if the agents knew the comics were down there, you would hope one of them would come down and say, you've got pushes on Thursday night or whatever. So Lenny Bruce would hang out there. There's a legendary guy named Joe Ansis, Ansis. who I never met. But I heard that he was the kind of guy who was doing offstage what Lenny Bruce was doing on stage. Yeah, it was, yeah. There's a, there's a, that's the story is that Lenny kind of copped it from him. Yeah, that's what I had heard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it was great to finally do this, and hopefully, I'll see you in person soon. Oh, you know something? Why don't we make a pact the next time? You know, we're on the same coast or whatever. Let's get a hold of each other. And uh, when they allow us to have lunch or dinner, let's do that. It would be really fun. It would be great, Alan. So nice to see you. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. That was me and Zweibel, Alan. Zweibel, Zweibel, Alan. His book, Laugh Lines, My Life, Helping Funny People Be Funnier, is now available. I'll play a little guitar here. And uh, I'll let you know what's up in a couple of days. All right. Be well, be safe. Wear your fucking mask.